Well, church, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. This morning we arrive at what certain scholars consider to be the principle at the heart of Paul's argument, which coincidentally features at the dead center of his letter, namely verses 26 through 29. And that principle is union in Christ. Union in Christ. In every verse that we'll soon study, this theme of union with Christ or of being in Christ is sounded. All believers are sons of God in Christ. Verse 26. Those who've been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 27. In Christ Jesus, believers are one. Verse 28. And those who are of Christ are Abraham's seed. Verse 29. Now, I would imagine that many of us have likely heard this phrase, union in Christ, at some point in time. But if you're anything like me, then the significance of this spiritual reality has likely eluded you. As a young person growing up in a Christian home, I was quickly introduced to the many metaphors that Scripture employs when describing salvation, such as new birth, which Jesus used so memorably in his famous encounter with Nicodemus in John's Gospel third chapter, or the losing of your life, as Christ put it in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verse 35, or dying to your old self of being crucified with Christ, which is the words that Paul chose to use as we've seen together in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and which again reflected Christ's words recorded in Matthew's gospel, 16, verse 24. And then there's the less grim but no less poignant analogy of being adopted, which we talked about with Vika, being adopted into God's family. And this is Paul's metaphor. It's used in Ephesians 1, but once again, it draws on Jesus's promise. It's recorded in John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 18, to not leave you orphans. I will come to you, was Jesus's promise. Now, I heard all of these comparisons as a child, But as one unfamiliar with death, particularly crucifixion, as having never had nor planning to have a baby, and with little to no exposure at the time to adoption, the full weight of what our union in Christ represents was lost for me in translation. And it really wasn't until my sister-in-law, now that's Melinda's sister, Laura, and her husband, Jared, it wasn't until my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law adopted my nephew, Kenan, that I began to get exactly what this union means. Now, please don't miss, I said I began to get. I I got, I didn't get. I'm still learning the ramifications of what this union in Christ is and how this reality, this theology, informs our lives as children of God. Children of God, because that's what we are. God's sons and daughters. God's. Isn't that just nuts? I mean, it's, it's crazy. Where the fruitiness of this reality may, I think, be helpfully illustrated by way of a story. In his book, The Sickness Unto Death, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard asked his readers to imagine a day laborer, so a common day worker, living in a great kingdom ruled by an awesome emperor. And the day laborer never dreamed the Kierkegaard writes that the emperor knew he existed. Who then would consider himself indescribably favored just to be permitted to see 
the emperor once. Something that he would then relate to his children and grandchildren as the most important event in his life. But, suppose, Kierkegaard mused, suppose the emperor then did something unexpected. If the emperor sent for him, so this is this day laborer, if the emperor sent for him and told him that he wanted him for his son-in-law, what then? Now, quite humanly, the day laborer would be more or less puzzled, self-conscious, and embarrassed by it. And, and this, he would, and this is the humanness of it, he would humanly find it very strange and bizarre that the emperor wanted to make a fool of him, make him the laughing stock of the whole city. For what other motivation could this grand emperor possibly have for such a ludicrous invitation? And Kierkegaard's point is, as he writes, a little favor. That would make sense to the laborer. But the very idea that someone yet unknown and of such insignificance should be made to be a son-in-law, or heaven help us, an heir. In Kierkegaard's words, such a thing is too high for me. I can't grasp it. Perfect, to be perfectly blunt, to me, it is a piece of folly. And he's right, isn't he? Because in keeping with this analogy, it would be a great thing. It would be a great thing for the king to send this day laborer a gift or a handwritten note of recognition or something of the kind which he could then hold on to for posterity and display at his convenience to all of his friends. But instead, this king is asking for a great deal more, isn't he? In essence, he's, he's asking, the king is asking to become a part of this guy's life. More accurately, the king wants this man's identity changed. Who he is to now and forever be associated with royalty. And guys, that's what God desires. Unfortunately, as one theologian observes, we would rather have the occasional brush of God's presence or a relic of his solidarity with us, so that God can be an appendage to our identity. But God wants more than that, doesn't he? He, like the king referenced by Kierkegaard, wants our lives, our adopted identity, by bringing us into the new reality of the Spirit, we can call out to God, Abba, Father, as adopted children united to Christ. And this, friends, is the crazy reality of divine adoption or union in Christ that I believe Paul addresses in the verses that we're going to examine and, and then hopefully begin to unpack together in the time that remains. So with that said, and your Bible's open to Galatians 3.26, and invite you to follow along as I read our text for this morning. Galatians 3.26, the apostle writes, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, the first point that I believe Paul provides addresses how union in Christ is accomplished 
by faith. Union in Christ is accomplished by faith. As Paul says, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Where the you Paul references here is obviously his Galatian readers who weren't exclusively male. And therefore the King James along with a number of other translations render this opening phrase as children of God. Children of God. And I don't think that's wrong. However, there is a reasoning at work in the NIV 84, the 2011, if you have that translation, NIV, it uses children of God. But there's a reasoning at work in the NIV 84, the ESV, the NASB, and the Holman's use of sons. And that is the significance relationally and culturally conveyed by this status of sons. So let me explain. In the Greco-Roman culture, the world, at the time that this would have been written, and really, if we're honest, to a certain degree, even in our own day, the role of sons reflected inheritance, reflected standing in the family. And thus, I believe Paul's use of sons was likely intended to convey more than what we would today consider to be an attitude of insensitivity to sexual equality. In other words, Paul, in his use of this term, was attempting to capture the elevation of one's status from slave as we'll see in just a moment, to son. He wasn't trying to demean all daughters of whom I have the two most beautiful in all the world. I'm just saying. At the same time, there is also the Old Testament's pointed use of this same term as applied by God to Israel. For example, Exodus 4 and verse 22 where Moses is directed to tell Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn, what? son and I told you let my son go so he may worship me but you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son and then elsewhere Hosea chapter 1 verse 10 Israel as a people or as a nation or corporately called sons of the living God so point is the you here in Galatians 3 refers to everyone all the Galatians male and female who have now become and enjoy full status as God's children, God's people. And friends, to a degree, we can all appreciate the sense of belonging that's captured here, can't we? If you've ever had a job, you've ever been a part of a team, you've been given a t-shirt, received your name on a badge, then you know in part what's being described here. And I say in part and to a degree on purpose because there's a depth to being a son that is obviously not reflected in your relationship with coworkers. Now, your office mates, your dental staff, your nursing cohort and Chick-fil-A team, they don't have your back like family, the family intended by the apostle. There's an obligation that's placed on family that's not felt by friends. And when I say obligation, I don't mean unwanted necessarily, although you may have experienced this sentiment in your home where your family expressed irritation at having to care for one another. But to my point, they felt that obligation. Therefore, they were irritated, right? Now, friends don't share the same depth of connection. And this is why we who are God's children, men and women, red, yellow, black, white, whatever, we aren't called God's servants here, but sons. We aren't just friends here. We are family. Doesn't that just blow your mind? Because it should. Sally Lloyd-Jones is the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible. 
Melinda got an opportunity to hear her speak at the conference she participated in in Nashville a couple weeks ago. But Sally Lloyd-Jones has this awesome devotional called Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, in which for one of them, she takes Psalm 8, Psalm 8, and she points out how in verse 3, David ponders God's grandeur revealed in creation, where the heavens, he writes, are the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And then the king asks, and rightly so, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And Jones then points out how by comparison, if the United States, our country, were equivalent to our galaxy, then our solar system, so sun, moon, stars, all of our planets, our solar system would be the size of a single coffee cup in these, our United States, with earth nothing more than a speck of dust on the inside of that coffee. And God, David said, made all of this with just his fingers. Are you getting the significance of God's invitation to be his child? Paul writes, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So, so the means by which we are adopted into God's family is by faith faith. And, and this is the very thing that we've seen the apostle emphasize since chapter 2 verse 15 where in explanation of his confrontation with Peter, Paul declared, who we, who are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, we who are Jews by birth know a man's not justified by observing the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. For Paul, the scriptures clearly portrayed belonging to God's family as the result of faith. That which Abraham displayed when God's promise to him was to bless him, to make his name great, and he believed. As the apostle even in this chapter notes earlier, chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Consider Abraham. Look to this guy as an example. He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then, those who believe or have faith are children of Abraham. The promised seed that we read about in our text this morning. Which we discussed last week if you were with us. And which Paul is very keen here to guard from being interpreted with any kind of cultural exclusivity. Because you notice how he writes, you are all. You are all. There's no filter placed on those who may be God's children, but the necessity of faith in Christ. Where this faith, far from presenting adoption in Christ as this exclusively Christocentric act, it's in fact a beautiful Trinitarian work reflecting the very nature of our God. Because as one theologian describes, it's initiated by the Father, it's mediated by the Spirit, and it's grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle himself attests to this very thing, this acts, Trinitarian nature. When we get to chapter 4 and verse 4, as Paul writes, But when the time had fully come, God, that's the Father, sent His Son, that's Christ, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God, that's the Father, sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Emmanuel, doesn't that just blow you away? That God makes us His own, not by anything that we could do, and therefore not because of any abilities that we possess or don't possess, but simply by His grace through faith in His Son. As I said earlier, I only began to get the full ramifications of this adoption metaphor when my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law adopted my nephew, Kenan. Kenan became their child in entirety. Despite the fact that he looked nothing like his brother Micah. And as those of you who've met them know, Micah, Kenan has dark skin. Micah looks like he's seen a ghost. Kenan has dark curly hair. Micah's as thin and wispy. But you know those differences mean absolutely nothing. And Kenan knows nothing. Nothing but life as a child of Laura and Jared. His belonging to the Morris family, it's not a sidebar to his life that serves as an outlet for social activity and relational fulfillment from time to time. His belonging is defining. It's, it's who he is and it's who he forever will be. His father's house, where he lives, and his father's rules by which he abides. They're not optional condiments laid out on life's salad bar, so to speak. They're the parameters governing who he is. And all of this belonging resulted, as we talked about with Vika, from decisions completely outside of his control. Kenan made no decision to be born into his life circumstances. He made no choice to put himself up for adoption. He had no control over who reached out to the adoption agency and was given the opportunity to make him their son, their child. He had nothing to do with it. And yet he believes, oh, with all his heart, he believes it. Do you? Are you God's child by faith? faith in Christ or are you living under the impression that by your belonging or that your belonging hinges on your worth, your value, your ability to merit your place? Hear God's word this morning, friend. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So union with Christ is accomplished by faith alone. And union in Christ is displayed in baptism. Union with Christ is displayed in baptism. As Paul writes in verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there's some scholars who believe that this shift from faith in verse 26 to baptism now in verse 27 as the means of union with Christ reflects early Christian liturgy, order to a worship service, and that's possible. However, it's clearly a motif that Paul used often in his letters as evidenced by Romans chapter 6, verse 3. And Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, wrote, Or do you know 
Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then later when he wrote to the church in Colossae, Colossians 2 and verse 12, which reads, Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So clearly the connection between faith and baptism as pertains to belonging to God's family was one of significance for the apostle. And therefore I believe that he appeals to baptism here in our text for at least two reasons. The first of which is water baptism, which is most certainly what Paul has in mind here. Water baptism was the normal culminating event in a person's faith journey. Let me say that again. Water baptism was the normal culminating event in a person's faith journey. Now clearly, Paul is not suggesting that baptism is salvific in any way because he's just spent, as we've seen together over the past few weeks, the better part of two chapters insisting on salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So baptism is not in and of itself a means of salvation or incorporation into Christ. However, as one commentator points out, baptism is more than simply a symbol of the new relationship. It's the capstone of the process by which one is converted and initiated into the church, which leads us to the second reason for Paul's baptismal appeal here. And I believe that is that there is a connection between baptism and incorporation into Christ, which is revealed when Paul's Christology is considered, meaning Paul's understanding of who Jesus is, where, as it relates to this point specific, Paul clearly viewed Christ as the last or the second Adam, a, a corporate figure who, like the first Adam, was linked to a body of men and women who share in his benefits or judgments, as in the case of the first Adam's fall and the subsequent divine curse which we know of and experience that fell on all humanity. In the last Adam, the second Adam, who for Paul, based on Scripture, is Christ, and he goes to a great length to describe this if you want to look at it in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, but for Paul, being baptized into Christ is the act displaying one's belonging to Christ, and in the corporate sense, then also to his body, which we know is called the church. So friends, this is why we as Baptists view the act of baptism as something profound. Now, unlike other of our evangelical brothers and sisters, and as we've already pointed out, we don't view water baptism to be salvific. There's no literal transformation or regeneration that occurs as one enters the baptistry. A person's immersion in water doesn't affect faith or the engrafting into Christ such that before you were baptized, you were separated from God, and then afterwards you were now saved. Water baptism doesn't save anyone. Paul's made that abundantly clear as we've seen together to this point in our study. But by the same token, baptism isn't just something that we can take lightly and offer to anybody at any time for any reason. The scriptures describe how those who came to be baptized did so following times of teaching such as evidenced in Acts 8, where Philip was sent to assist the Ethiopian, who, following the deacon's explanation of the Scriptures, the Ethiopian asked Philip, look, here's water. His, God's Word had been made clear. His eyes had been opened by grace through faith. And the Ethiopian asks, look, here's water. 
why shouldn't I be baptized? And then that same approach is seen in Peter's dealings with Cornelius. And it's described in Acts chapter 10 where the centurion, by faith, having heard Peter proclaim the gospel by faith, received, believed and received God's Holy Spirit. And following that, only then did Peter ask, can anybody keep these people from being baptized with water? So their baptized, baptism didn't save them, but it was symbolic of their faith and it capped coming to Christ by demonstrating that they now belonged to his body, the church. And if we wanted to employ a, a contemporary analogy, it would have been one consistent with those times, but today the act that makes a marriage official is not the ceremony that is celebrated at the church, is it? It's the paperwork that you fill out. The ceremony merely caps that celebration and serves to display to all present the belonging that that couple has now together in the community of those who are united in holy matrimony. So the celebration merely caps it. And that's why, friends, we believe baptism is the means by which believers are brought into fellowship with Christ's body, his church. Now, we don't ask or require everyone who desires belonging in our local congregation, our local gathering of Christ's body to be baptized at our hands. Meaning if you experience or you've experienced believer's baptism, and by that we mean that what you've experienced was as the scriptures describe, Baptism, representative of, your, a representative of your cognitive appreciation of Christ's death for your sin, your repentance of that sin, belief in Christ for salvation, and confession of Him as your life's Lord. If you've been baptized as a believer, then we will welcome you into our local fellowship because we believe that you've already displayed the beautiful picture that baptism is intended to portray, that of belonging to Christ's body. However, if you haven't, and then again, in keeping with the scriptures, we ask that you enter the waters of baptism so that we may witness what we believe Christ intended and celebrate with you belonging to his body. For Paul, union in Christ is displayed by baptism where those who have experienced it have clothed themselves with Christ, as Paul writes. And I just, I just love that additional metaphor that the apostle provides us. This picture of being robed with Christ. It, it brings to my mind the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. Who following those wasted years spent squandering his father's inheritance returns. And rather than being met with condemnation he finds himself welcomed with open arms by the father. Who immediately as Jesus put it said quick bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on this boy's feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what belonging to Christ should look like? And I say should because so often when we look at the church today, those who by this definition ought to all be wearing that same coat, Instead of sharing a sense of profound gratitude and unworthiness, we see men and women who are comparing. Rather than celebrating each other's beautiful adornment, we see men and women trying to tear the sleeves off and the coattails off others' appearance so that they might seem more desirable, that we might be seen 
as more beautiful. When all along we are nothing, each and every one, but wayward sons and daughters who've been rescued from pigsties and provided with belonging in the Father's house. Emmanuel, may we never forget whose righteousness clothes us. And may we never minimize the significance of our union in Christ, which is accomplished by faith, displayed in or demonstrated by baptism, and which eliminates division. Union in Christ eliminates division. Would you look back with me just for a moment to verse 28 there? Verse 28 is where Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, Slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I would imagine that this is a familiar saying to many this morning. It's a principle shared in two other of Paul's epistles, 1 Corinthians 12, as well as in Colossians chapter 3. Here, in Galatians, Paul takes these three sets of opposites, and I'd like us to consider them individually for just a moment so that we can attempt to better understand just how profound is our union in Christ. And so let's begin with Jews and Greeks, whereas the clearest cultural contrast given in Scripture, Paul begins by pointing out how Christ has eliminated this most fundamental distinction in humanity. At least it was for the Jews, and I think still is for the Jews. You know, for Israel, you were either one of them or you were one of us. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile, which is what that term Greek is used to depict there in verse 28. And thus, in this initial set, Paul is removing his reader's most significant stigma. What would you say is yours? Now, I'm fairly sure that most of us would want to quickly blurt out, I don't have one. I love everybody. I don't stereotype. Heavens, that would be the worst thing you could do in this culture. I accept all people's. Others of us might be a little bolder and unashamedly admit to having a prejudice. I mean, shoot, I've gotten a prejudice. There's a good reason why I do. Otherwise, I wouldn't have it. But it's still a prejudice. You realize what Paul is saying here is that all of the ways that we tend to divide our world are eliminated in Christ. And therefore, when we speak about or we treat others in a manner inconsistent with Christian unity, we're sinning. So Paul starts with Jews and Greeks. He then moves on to the slaves and the free, where I believe that this pair was intended to illuminate the division between the Roman Empire's two most important social classes at the time. The two most important social classes. And friends, as with cultural distinction given by Jews and Greeks here, we're faced with the reality of, of social distinction where if asked, I'm sure, again, we'd all quickly deny the fact that this issue affects the church today. But is that true? When we look around our nation and we find so many churches reflecting membership drawn from the same social setting, when we market the gospel in selective ways in order to make it appeal to a specific demographic, aren't we revealing that for our gospel, there is, in fact, the slave and the free? cowboy and the millennial, the traditionalist and the contemporary. And Paul gives us cultural distinctions, social distinctions, and then he adds an odd one. 
an odd one, male and female. And this is odd because it isn't featured in either of the parallel passages that I mentioned a moment ago. That's 1 Corinthians 12 and Colossians 3. So what, what is Paul suggesting here? And let me just begin with saying what Paul is not saying. What Paul is not saying, particularly as it relates to our contemporary gender issues. The apostle is not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination that union with Christ eliminates gender distinctions. And therefore, how we associate as distinct from our biological sex, which is given us by God, the creator, that that no longer matters. No, 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 no. And without going off topic and chasing rabbits, let me just note, we are the first generation ever, meaning we who live in this day and age, first generation ever, as in since the beginning of humanity, first generation ever, to believe that our gender may be disconnected from our biology. This is a recent dysphoria, and therefore it may not be read into Paul's statement here without doing gross disservice to the apostle and completely undermining what he intended to communicate where I believe Paul's reference to there now being neither male nor female is most likely to emphasize how in Christ's coming, there is now a new creation in which the old ways, where women were not inheritors, where they were viewed as second-class citizens and were treated as such, those days were gone. It says one theologian notes, superiority and inferiority of status or esteem could have no place in the society whose founder, capital F, whose founder laid it down among all of his followers that whoever would be first would be the slave or servant of all. And friends, you've got to know that these words represented a radical shift for Paul's original readers. And sadly, it hasn't been until recently, as in the last 200 years or so recently, that we've actually begun to see them fleshed out as I think Paul intended here in our, our country. See, unfortunately, as with many of the commands in Scripture, these words have been seized upon and they've been taken out of context to prop up all kinds of movements where Christ's name isn't exalted. And those involved, they appeal to such Scriptures not for the purpose of displaying unity, but for self-serving ends aimed at completely the opposite of what Paul is describing. Union. Union in Christ. And so for Paul, as for us, union in Christ is accomplished by faith. It's displayed in baptism and it eliminates division. Because as Paul concludes, verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And there's that corporate reference again where that term in the singular is being used to communicate a plural reality. That's the church. We, we church are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, which as we saw, if you were with us last week, that was a promise made to Abraham. And therefore, this promise wasn't a New Testament phenomenon intended to rectify Old Testament or Old Covenant failure. Rather, it represents God's original, therefore only design, where through union with His Son, like His creation in every way yet without sin, we who confess our sin and believe in Jesus are brought into relationship with God such that now... All the riches, promises, and power of God are ours because we're in Christ. Friends, that means that Christianity isn't a religion marked by weekend activities, participation in a few outreach events, and the occasional mission trip. It's the radical, life-altering adoption of worthless, 
hopeless men and women as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Are you a child of the King? Are you living like it? Because you remember, one theologian says, you can't become an adopted child of God by trying really hard to be one. By exercising spiritual disciplines, by giving to those in need, or loving your neighbor, all of these actions should be fruits of your union with Christ. Fruit of the work of Christ for you, that's justification, and fruit of Christ's work in you, that's sanctification. Union with Christ only comes by God's grace through faith. Are you in union with Christ? I pray that you are. Would you pray with me to that end as we close? Father, you have made abundantly clear in your word that we cannot merit salvation. We cannot bring about our adoption into your family by anything that we could do. That is something only you did for us by grace that we receive by faith. Father, we thank you for how clear your word is, how you have made known your plan from the very foundation of the earth and how that plan has never changed. Father, we thank you that what we are a part of, the family to which we belong, is not some ad hoc reaction to failure that now has been pieced together in hopes of providing joy down the road. Rather, what we see is the fulfillment of promise and the consistency of character of the God who is love and who by His grace and through His love has opened the eyes of those of us here who are your children. Father, as we've heard the gospel this morning, the means that you have determined to open eyes, God, I pray that you have opened eyes and hearts' eyes so that faith has been birthed. And that faith now as we close, God, with a time of worship and commitment might be attested to by those who have experienced your grace. Father, thank you that this is a work that you do. And we thank you for the reminder of what it means to be your children. Father, would you continue to impress upon us the weight of the privilege of being your children and that we might live in light of that privilege, faithfully proclaiming ourselves to be your children by our love, Father, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name.